I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 138, chapter 138. What, what did I say? I'm an idiot. Psalm 138. <clears throat> What'd you say, David? Yeah, right. <clears throat> I appreciate y'all keeping me around here. Some of the stupid stuff I do sometimes. This is probably my life verse, Proverbs 30, verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. All right. So, well, I wasn't expecting it to go there at the beginning of the sermon. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Father, I thank you for your word tonight and God, how you are working through it and how your word is just accomplishing all that you purpose for it too. I pray, Father, that it will tonight as well in our midst. And Lord, for those who are joining us online, I thank you, Lord, for them. And I pray that your word would just have its, have your will done. God, in our lives tonight. Please give us understanding and uh, educate us, strengthen us through our time together. I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so Psalm 138, verse 2. Really, this brings us to the third message that I've uh, been going through here, uh, talking about the Bible, really. And this was, um, this is a came from our study from 2 Peter chapter 1. I've shared with you a message already entitled The Bible Book of God. And then the second message that I preached two weeks ago on Sunday, the Lord's Day evening, was The Bible Came to Be. That was the second message in this short series. And tonight's message is The Bible Magnified. Now, As we look at Psalm 138, verse 2, we see here in this that previously there in verse 1, the psalmist David said, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods. I will sing praises to you. Gods there very well could mean the the false gods of the other nations. Psalm 96, verse 5 might give us an indication as to what he's talking about there, but I don't want to get too distracted by by that, but he says, Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. And then in verse 2, reading that again, the psalmist says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. So you'll notice here that there's an emphasis on the name of the Lord, the name of God. And he goes on from there, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but he goes on from, from there to talk about the mercy and the truth of God or the loving kindness and the truth of God. He says, for your loving kindness and your mercy. Some translations may have the word mercy there rather than loving kindness. Um, but that is, a, that is a theme that we're going to see in the Psalms. Um, but he goes on from there in the next portion of this verse. It says, for you have magnified. Your word 
above all your name. That caught my attention when I was uh, reading through this recently, and I've noticed it before, but reading through it recently, just um, uh, my attention was drawn to the fact that God has magnified his word. Some of your translations may say that he has done that with his name or according to his name, but there's an emphasis being placed here on the promises of God in his word, on the spoken and written word of God uh, that he has given to his people. Now, this very well may be in this psalm a reflection back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the promise is given to David that he will have one of his, uh, one of his seed to sit on the throne uh, everlastingly, and that would be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we know, the Son of God who came and bore our sins on the cross, dying there and rising again on the third day victoriously from the grave. That is not something that we just talk about and think that it's... uh, Uh, interesting to speak of, but it is something that is our life, Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the psalmist here is really, however it comes across, emphasizing the importance of the word and how the Lord has magnified that word uh, above all his name. Now, here's what I want to do. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Because here in Exodus 34, we find a description of the name of the Lord. Exodus 34. And we're going to have to move quick because we have a lot to cover tonight. But I I need you to know that this is here. Because the passage that we're about to look at is the most oft-quoted verse in the Bible by other Bible writers. And this is also the most often-quoted verse. Scripture uh, in part by other Bible writers. So in other words, you find a portion of this or some similarities of this verse quoted in the Bible more than any other statement about God or any other truth that is to be found there. So in Exodus 34, and I'm not going to get a whole lot into the context or anything because again, we have a lot that I need to cover tonight. But uh, Moses has been talking to God. He wants to see the glory of the Lord. And going back to verse chapter 33, verse chapter 33, verse 19, uh, after in verse 18, he said, show me your glory. Verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, going to chapter 34, verse 6. And there it says, And the Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
So when God desired, and that's the end of the reading there, but when God desired to make his name known, to make himself known to Moses, this is what he said. This is what he said about himself. That he is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. That is the name of the Lord. That's what the name of the Lord means. Um, And that is quoted more than anything else throughout the pages of Scripture. That is the name of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Psalm 138, and really every time you're reading in the uh, Old Testament and you see where the passage of Scripture may talk about the name of the Lord, it has meaning behind it. It doesn't just mean Yahweh. It doesn't just mean um, God or uh, anything else that may be a name for God in the Bible. It has meaning behind it. When he says your name, it is very, um, it may very well be that that author is thinking back to Exodus 34 and what the name of the Lord means. And we saw it laid out there. Now, you, that may make sense as to why he says what he says here in verse 2. This is one of those examples of how this is quoted. He says, and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Now, let's do this. If you'd follow along with me very quickly. Psalm uh, 25, verse 10. Psalm 25, verse 10. We have several psalms that we're going to look at real quick. Psalm 25, verse 10. I want to see and show you how often this is mentioned in the psalms. And many of these will be translated not loving kindness, but mercy. All right, so here in Psalm 25, verse 10, we'll try to move pretty quickly. It says here about the Lord, Psalm 25, verse 10. If you got it, say amen. Amen. Uh, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Then he says, for your name's sake, O Lord. Now, if you turn with me to Psalm 57, verse 3. Psalm 57, verse 3. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Psalm 61 verse 4. I will abide. Let's see here. I'm sorry. I knew something was wrong. Psalm 61 verse 7. Psalm 61, verse 7. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. Then Psalm 108, verse 4. Psalm 108, verse 4. Psalm 108, verse 4. For your mercy is great above the heavens. And your truth reaches to the clouds. Psalm 115 verse 1. 
He says there, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Why? Because of your mercy, because of your truth. And then Psalm 117, the shortest chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 117, and the one that's written to all the nations. He says in verse 2, For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. We see the merciful kindness of the Lord, and we see the truth of the Lord enduring forever. And then he ends that by saying, praise the Lord. So I'm going over those to point out to you the emphasis here, really, of who God is in his mercy and truth, and how we might see that God is... Um, magnifying His Word that states clearly for us who He is and that He is this merciful God of truth and then He has he has magnified that above His name. He has magnified that with His name. It is a great truth that is to be embraced by all nations, by all peoples. In Psalm 86... He says something, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 85, verse 10. There's an interesting verse here um, that says, Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and, I'll let you get there, Psalm 85, verse 10. In this great psalm where he asks the Lord to revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. In verse 7 he says, show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. And then in verse 10, dropping down, he says there, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and your land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Now, the last place I would have you to turn is the Gospel of John and the first chapter. We're warming our Bibles up a little bit tonight. John chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of this mercy and truth. John chapter 1. Verse 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him And cried out saying this was he of whom I said. He who comes after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came Through Jesus Christ. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, all of this mercy and truth talk from the Old Testament. And then, you know, we see that there in Exodus 34 about the name of God and who He is. He has written about it and magnified His Word with His name about who He is. But then there is a person who came and His name is Jesus and Jesus declared it. It was more than just written on a page, but it was in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would take our sins upon Himself on the cross, being put to death there, buried, but rising again on the third day. Mercy and truth, or grace and truth, kiss and meet in the person of Jesus on the cross. Because God demonstrates His mercy, but at the end, at the same time, He demonstrates His truth, the justice of God. That's why God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to be justified before God, and do you know what that means? That word justified means? It means to be made right. It means to be declared righteous while we are yet in our sinful state. You and I sin on a daily basis. You and I fall short of the glory of God on our on a daily basis. But in Christ, we are justified before the Father. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I got a question for you tonight. Are you in Christ Jesus? Because if you're not in Christ Jesus, the word of God tells us that you are under the wrath and condemnation of God. The only way to escape the condemnation that is upon us justly because of our sin is if you are in Christ Jesus. You know, in a sense, folks, your sin is not what sends you to hell. Did you know that? It is not necessarily your sin that sends you to hell. What will send you to hell is that you have rejected the testimony of God, that He has given us eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ, but yet you spurn that and you reject that and you will not receive it. You're in the Gospel of John. You'll see this in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, in verse 16, we know that verse very well, but you'll notice the verses that follow it. John 3, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? What's it going to say? Is it going to say because he's a great sinner? No. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. 
and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You see, the reason you're not a Christian tonight is because you hate the light and you will not come to the light. The gospel call is for every person to hear that Christ Jesus has died on the cross for sinners. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance. That means every person ought to accept it. What is that statement? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he ends it by saying, of whom I am chief. Do you understand that you're a sinner and that you're separated from God, that you're at enmity with him, that you're weak and without strength and you are ungodly and you cannot be saved upon your own merit? And you do you realize that and say, I need a savior. Jesus is the savior. He came and died in my place and rose again from the dead. See, that's the light. And that's what John 3 is calling us to come to. And that is the culmination of the Old Testament mercy and truth of God. It's found in the person of Jesus. And God has magnified His Word with His name because it tells us about His character and what He will and has done now through Christ. The Son of God. So the plea to you tonight and to every one of us is to make sure that your righteousness is not of yourself, but that your righteousness, in other words, what you are counting on on that day when you stand before the Holy God, the Holy Lord Jesus Christ in judgment, that your righteousness on that day will not be what you have done, what you have accomplished, or where, where you came from, or what you have. But on that day, your righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Because that is the only righteousness. That is the only righteousness that is sufficient before a holy God. Listen to me. There will be no imperfect people in heaven. Don't say to yourself, well, I'm not perfect. That statement should scare you to death. Because there will be no imperfect people in heaven. There will only be those who are declared righteous through Jesus Christ. We are perfect through the perfect Son of God. Through the Son of Man. What does it say? Son of God became Son of Man. That sons of men might become sons of God. The only way we can be that before God is through His dear Son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? 
Do you believe the testimony of God? That's not what this pastor says. That's what God has said. And his son is sufficient to save any lost sinner who comes to him in faith. You don't have to be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the mercy and truth of God. It is displayed in his darling son, Jesus Christ. Now, all right, I don't really know how this next part of this message fits into anything that I've just said too much. Other than I will say this, the next part that we're about to go through, we're going to have to move quickly because I want to go through this in relation to our study on the Bible. Um, the next part is a note taker's dream. All right. So if you're taking notes tonight and you got a pen and pencil, then this is a note taker's dream. Um, and I, I want to remind you that in what we're about to look at, uh, the this is all sort of educational stuff for us. But what I've declared to you in the gospel and the mercy and truth of God is preeminent. It is important. And you must consider your relationship with God through Christ. You will not go to heaven. You will not be right with God apart from Jesus. If you could do it any other way except through Him, He died for no reason. He died in vain. But He didn't die in vain. And He was surely and is the Son of God. Now, what we're about to do is look at some big words concerning some stuff with the Bible. And if you want to take notes, take notes. If you don't, don't. But I'm going to try to educate us on some things, and I don't really know how this fits together with everything I've just said to you. But what I've just said to you is the most important stuff. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through three words that you might hear when it comes to the Bible. We're going to work through the word Septuagint. We're going to work through the word Pseudepigrapha. And we're going to work through the word Apocrypha. Okay, y'all ready? All right, y'all better hold on because there's a lot. Again, this is a note taker's dream. All right, so first of all, Septuagint. And I'm doing this because of our series on the Bible. Septuagint, you might recognize that by LXX. Those are Roman numerals. They mean 70. All right, there were 70 translators of, um, of this particular thing. What is this? This is um, the Greek translation of the old testament it was the it is the greek translation of the old testament what language was the old testament originally written in anybody know hebrew that's right around 250 bc a um, king had the hebrew um, bible translated and it uh, received the name Septuagint or LXX 70 for the amount of translators who translated it. Now, we you see it was translated around 250 BC and it was originally only the Pentateuch. When I say the word Pentateuch, what does that mean? 
There you go. First five books, the books of the law, the Pentateuch. But uh, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures were translated, and it is all considered the Septuagint. Next, we would understand that the translation, this, the translation, this is the translation that Jesus and the apostles would have most often used. That's why sometimes when you read a quote from the Old Testament that's in the New Testament, and then you go to the Old Testament to see how they compare, they may be a little different. It's because there's, this is, they're quoting from the Septuagint. All right, and then finally, this originally contained deuterocanonical books. Just write that down if you want to, or forget about it if you want to, but I'll, I'll tell you what that is here in a little bit. All right, so it originally contained those books. That's the Septuagint. Have y'all heard of the Septuagint before? All right, so now, hopefully if you didn't know before, you will know that this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. All right, now we're going to go to our next one, Pseudopigrapha. Pseudopigrapha. That's a that's a great great word. It, um, let's see here. It basically means false writings. All right, you might have heard of the pseudopigrapha, but it means false writings, as in uh, false author or false name. In other words, there might be a name, a book named after Moses, but Moses didn't write it. There might be a book named after Enoch, but Enoch didn't write it. Okay. Uh, it might be a testimony of Zephaniah, but Zephaniah didn't write it. So it's a false name or a false author. All right. Let's see here. There's approximately 65 writings or fragments that qualify as pseudepigrapha. 65 of them. There's a whole Bible's worth of these writings that one could compile. Uh, most of these were written between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D., which I saw another place where it said really uh, 70 A.D., but that's a pretty good span there in which these were probably written. Uh, these contain many different types of literature. Let's see if there's any more on that. Right, I'm going back. Many different types of literature. Let me give you an example of this. There's apocalyptic literature in the pseudepigraphal writings. Um, there are testaments. There are expansions and legends. There are wisdom and philosophical there is wisdom and philosophical literature in the pseudepigraphal writings. There are prayers, psalms, and odes in the pseudepigraphal uh, writings. And let me give you just an example here. I'm going to go to the Testaments and read a couple of these. For instance, the Testament of Job. Um, and this is a summation of it. It says that first, this was a first century B.C., to 1st century A.D. Testament. So in other words, it was written around 100 B.C. to 100 A.D., uh, sometime in there. Um, and it purports to contain Job's final words. Right? Then there's the Testament of Abraham. Um, 
I'm going to skip over the dating part of it, but it's um, the first, um, first to second century, 100 um, to 200. As it presents itself as an account of how stubborn Abraham was in death. It depicts him trying to bargain with God and refusing to surrender his soul. Okay, now let me give you another one. Um, the Testament of Moses. Here's a summation. I'm just going to read it. A partially preserved text dating in the 1st or 2nd century A.D., which claims to be Moses' farewell discourse to Joshua and outlines the history of Israel from their entrance into Canaan until the end of days. Now, there's a testament of Adam, a testament of Solomon. It goes kind of on and on there. Some of those... And it, this is the way it is with most of the, apoc- the pseudepigraphal writings and the apocryphal writings is that they are kind of fantastic. When we read about, oh, the last words of Job, ooh, I'd, I'd kind of like to know the last words of Job. Yeah, that's really cool. That's not in my Bible. I'd like to really know what he said there at the end. It's sensational. It's fanciful. That's the way a lot of these writings tend to be. Now, I would point out to you that there is an author in the New Testament who quotes from some pseudepigraphal writings. Does anybody know who it would be? He quotes from actually two of them. It's Jude. In the book of Jude, he quotes from the Assumptions of Moses and one of the books of Enoch. Now, you may say, oh, well, that means it must be Scripture. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that he included it in Scripture, so when he put it there, yes, it then became Scripture. But the Apostle Paul also quotes from a poet and a prophet in the modern day in a lost culture in which he lived. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That is a quote from a author of that day. So at that point, it became scripture. But just because these are quoted, that does not mean that the original author, if it was indeed a quote from those sources, that that is scripture itself, that book in its entirety. Okay, now let's go to the next one. No more so than it means that all the things that the poet, that Paul or the prophet on Crete, that Paul quoted from, that all that they wrote was scripture. All right, so now let's go to the next one, Apocrypho. Apocrypho, what does this mean? It means hidden. Apocrypha means hidden. Uh, This is deuterocanonical. This means a second canon. And this is what you might find in a Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha, from what I understand. Now, these are made up of about 20 works. However, it is hard to define all that is actually supposed to be in the apocryphal works. It is generally boiled down to 11 or 12 books, not 20. Here are some examples of this. You may have seen these around somewhere in your reading and studying. But these are most of the books in those 20 that may be considered apocryphal books. Please don't try to write all those down. I'll send them to you, okay? Or take a picture of it. 
that might be a better idea. Okay? Now, generally speaking, the people that I have talked to on this, even people from an Orthodox church uh, who would uh, have these included in their Bible, uh, the one individual that I've talked to, even they, though they recognize these scripture, these uh, books, they do not recognize them as scripture uh, by any means on the same level as the holy scriptures that we have in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Now let me go over a few things with you. Uh, seven reasons why we reject these writings as scripture. Number one, different doctrines and practices. Different doctrines and practices from what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm about to jump to another screen. Don't weird out on me. I'm about to give you six reasons why, or six doctrinal differences. So you might want to change up your notes here and start another column because I really don't want to mess you up or do some sub points here, okay? Doctrine, different doctrine and practices. What do we learn from these? I'm not going to read this stuff, but I'm going to at least show you these points. It teaches salvation by works. And I can show you texts that prove that. Number two, it teaches the doctrine of purgatory. There's a text from 2 Maccabees 12, 41 through 45, where that doctrine is gained. Number two, or number three, it teaches that God hears the prayers of the dead. Example of that is Baruch 3, verse 4. It teaches the pre-existence of souls. That's in Wisdom, chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. I'll read that when it's short. It says, For I was a witty child and had a good spirit. Yea, rather, being good, I came into a body undefiled. So it teaches the pre-existence of souls. Number five, it teaches creation out of pre-existent matter. Creation out of pre-existent matter. For thy almighty hand that made the world of matter without form. And that's wisdom 11 verse 17. And finally it teaches that the body weighs down the soul. For it says for the corruptible body presseth down the soul. And the earthly tabernacle weigheth down the mind that museth upon many things. Wisdom 9 verse 15. I'm not familiar with that stuff. I had to look all this up. Uh, most of this information that I'm giving you here on this came from, um, um, is it Blue Bible? Dot? Blue Letter Bible, Blue Letter Bible. Uh, they have a really good article on about the Apocrypha. So most of this information, uh, at least these these points in particular, were some that I took from that resource. I don't know all this stuff off the top of my head. I had to do some studying on it. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this and help you uh, see these things. So let's go to our back to our main list as we try to wrap this up. Number two. The Apocrypha is never cited in the New Testament as Scripture. Uh, three, the Jews have always rejected the Apocrypha as Scripture. Number four, these were written during the silent years. Does anybody know what the silent years were? Yep. 
Yeah, the, the silent years were at the end of Malachi, at the end of the history of the Old Testament there. The, and then there's 400 years of silence from 400 B.C. to when Christ is born, John the Baptist comes on the scene. There is no authoritative prophetic word from God. And these books were all, for the most part, written during that time. Number five, historical errors can be found in these writings. Number six, none of the writings claim divine authority like the scripture does. Thus saith the Lord. It is written. And then lastly, Jesus never recognizes these as scripture. You might remember at the resurrection account, and I'll just give you this as an example. You can write down these other references, though, if you'd like. Matthew 15, verse 3. Matthew 15, verse 3. Matthew 23, 34 through 36. And then these two, Luke 24, 25 through 27. In Luke 24, verse 44, we'll read these. In Luke 24, if you want to take your Bibles and turn to there, give you a break from taking notes. Uh, Luke 24, I'm sure you're quite familiar with these verses. After the resurrection of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples, and then uh, with his disciples after he had appeared to them again. Luke 24, verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in verse 44 of the same chapter. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So it's important to note that even though uh, the copy, the Septuagint, that, you know, what is that? The Greek translation of what? The Old Testament. Even though it had the Apocrypha in it at one time, during the days of Jesus, it either was no longer there or it was there, but they, Jesus never cited it or mentioned it as pointing to him. But he does mention the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets, which would have encapsulated all or included all of the writings of the Old Testament. Um, in Matthew 23, I'll, I'll point this out to you as well, because this is, um, in my mind, substantial here. We do need to go back to that. Uh, Matthew 23, when Jesus here is talking about 
Jerusalem and pronouncing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. He tells them what they did. If you look at verse 34, Matthew 23. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let me tell you what Jesus just did there. He said, from Genesis in your Old Testament scriptures to the end of the historical books of the Old Testament scriptures, because Second Chronicles would have been the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Zechariah would have been the last prophet of God or man of God killed and recorded in Scripture, he says, from the first man to the last man, their blood will come upon you. Jesus doesn't say anything about the men who supposedly lived and wrote during the silent years, the 400 years. So in the mind of Jesus, apparently, the Scriptures were from Genesis to the end of the history books in the Hebrew Bible. Abel to Zechariah. He doesn't go beyond that into supposed authors of the books of the Apocrypha. Does that make sense? That's substantial uh, in my thinking. All right. Um, That's all I've got. We need to end right there. If y'all got questions or want to talk about that further, we can. If you need my notes on that, I can send that to you as well. There's a lot more in there. That you, um, and that stuff may be good for reading about history, but listen, folks, none of that is Scripture. What we need to be investing most of our time is in the Bible, knowing the Word of God, and um, acquaint ourselves with those other writings as, as is beneficial. Uh, to the to ourselves and to the church, to our understanding of of the the holy Bible, the book of God. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. God, in Jesus, we find the mercy and truth of God coming together. And all of your Word, Lord, is pointing to Jesus. For He even said, God, to the Jews of His day, that they study the Scriptures, for in them they think they have life. But it is they that speak of Me. And your word, O God, points us to your Son. I pray that every person in the hearing of your word tonight, it can be said of them that they believe, they believe with all of their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. O Lord, I pray that this other stuff would educate us, bring clarity to our thinking, and strengthen us as we trust more fully in your word the holy scriptures and i thank you lord in jesus name amen